Hello, Ali. Hi, Jimmy. How are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? I'm good, and I very much like your shirt that you're wearing that I can see on our little video chat. It's got sort of a Hawaiian vibe about it. I, I don't know if you've been influenced by anything today. It very much reminds me of what a lot of the characters wear in the movie adaptation of the, the play we're doing today. Yeah, some would think I put it on especially for this. I didn't, by the way, because that would be very, very sad. But it, it, you're absolutely right, because what we are discussing today is... Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, one of the most famous love stories of all time. It is, you mentioned the film where they wear these kind of shirts, and I can't think of another film that had such a strong effect on my generation for getting into Shakespeare. Would you agree? I think it's one of those those films that people saw not even realising that it was Shakespeare if you were kind of our age when it came out and then being like, oh, this is sexy and cool and Leonardo DiCaprio definitely helps. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. And the thing about Romeo and Juliet, I mean, we're going to come on to the synopsis in, in just a moment, but the thing about it that I think is really, really, you know, for me, it's, it, 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 it paved the way for a, a huge amount of films that followed the same narrative of this you know, forbidden love of two people that are in love but can't be in love. And, you know, whether that's Moulin Rouge or whether that's Titanic or whether that was West Side Story, there are all these narratives that kind of followed suit. And I think it's such a powerful universal message of two people who want to be together but can't. And it just, it, it you know, it feels very, very universal. Do you know what I mean? I love that you said Moulin Rouge, one of my other ultimate favourite films. Same director, Baz Luhrmann, he's incredible. I thought... Everybody thinks that they know Romeo and Juliet. Like Shakespeare fans, non-Shakespeare fans. It is the it's the Shakespeare play that everyone's like, Romeo and Juliet, I know that one. We all know the story. We are gonna do the usual story breakdown. But I just thought I'd give, like we do normally, like a little bit of history about the play or some interesting facts at least. We've talked in previous podcasts about how good old Bill Shakespeare liked to steal people's stories and uh, make them his own. He did it with Hamlet. He has done it with Romeo and Juliet. I I'm so sorry. It is not original at all. I know. Um, I saw this as well. It's so, it's so, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's pretty much a lift, isn't it? Tell us about it. So there's, there's two previous references. There's one really extreme one, which is literally based on a poem called the tragic history of Romeo and Juliet. Oh. Um, I, I know. I mean, it's literally, it's completely like ripped out and it tells the unhappy tale of a beautiful youth, Romeus Montague, whose heart is entrapped by the wise and graceful Juliet Capulet. I mean, it's full name stealing. Everything is completely ripped out from it. The Montagues and the Capulets, again, also been referenced way, 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 way before Shakespeare wrote it in the Divine Comedy, which is the epic poem that Dante wrote. Well, it took him like 10 years to write. And he has like a, a reference in this poem being like, come and see you who are negligent, Montagues and Capulets. So, oh, Shakespeare, we, we love you, but stop stealing. Stop stealing. It's just not very nice, but it's it's a great story. So you know, it's just whoever wrote it is is... Very, very romantic. I think we can agree on that. You think it's a great love story. I I tend to disagree with you. But for anybody who is not sort of up to speed with Romeo and Juliet and can't remember it, should we give a little breakdown bit by bit? 
I'll do it right now. So, we got the Montague family and we got the Capulet family, and they have a long history and they hate each other. Now, Romeo is a Montague and he is pining over his love, Rosaline. Now, there's one night a Capulet bull. The Capulets decide to throw this big bull, and Romeo sneaks in disguised with a mask along with his friends Benvolio and Mercutio. Now, when he's there, he sees Juliet and he immediately falls in love with her. They decide to get married the next day and Friar Lawrence agrees to marry them the following morning. However, after they get married, Romeo is walking home and he's confronted by Juliet's cousin, Tybalt. Mercutio, who's Romeo's friend, defends him in this little confrontation and Tybalt stabs Mercutio. Romeo then, in revenge, kills Tybalt and is consequently banished from Verona. Now, things go from bad to worse for the heartbroken Juliet when she learns that not only is Romeo banished, but she will be forced to marry the Count Paris, who's basically very boring, very vanilla, and there's no love there whatsoever. Friar Lawrence, however, hatches a plan with Juliet that she's going to take this potion that will look as though she's dead, and consequently her family will lay her in the chamber and bury her, or just lay her there in a, in a coffin. So the plan is they're going to send a message to Romeo telling him, who will then come back, arrive at this chamber, and as Juliet wakes, they can then escape together to Mantua. However, it goes wrong when Romeo's friend sees Juliet dead at the funeral, and he runs back to Romeo, who's banished, and reports that Juliet is dead. So Romeo now thinks that Juliet's died because his mate gets there before this message from Friar Lawrence. So Romeo then comes back to the chamber to see Juliet lying there dead. However, she's not dead. She's just, you know, fake dead. Um, but Romeo believes she's dead. So Romeo kills himself. As Romeo is dying, Juliet then wakes, sees Romeo dead and kills herself. And it's a tragedy. And for me, it's a tragedy that love doesn't win. You know, despite the fact that these two people are madly in love, love does not always win. And it can't beat this ancient grudge that these two households have. Um, that's it in a nutshell. I think, Jimmy, the older I get, the more cynical I become with this play. Like when I was a teenager, I was like, oh my God, it's so romantic. Everybody wants to find their Romeo and be a Juliet. Yeah. Now I'm like, Jesus Christ, poor Juliet. She found this absolute fuck boy Romeo who was like two minutes ago being like, oh, I love Rosalind. And then he's like, head is turned and he ghosts Rosalind and is like, oh, hey, Juliet, what's up? Um, let's get into loads of trouble and then die. The older I get, I'm just like, this is not, this is not a love story. This is about yeah. a hormonal teenager who just can't keep it in his pants and he causes a, a load of grief for everybody else. Do you know what? I, I do agree. I think that one of the big, one of the big questions of this play is, are they really in love? And it's about very young people. I mean, you know, let's remember that I think Romeo's 16 and Juliet's 14. Is that right? In, in, in how it's intended to be, you know, to, to be portrayed. And so these are these are children, really. And this is um, this is Italy, which Italy is a country. It's very romantic. It's very heart on sleeve, impulsive as a as a as, as a kind of vibe, isn't it? And um, this all happens. This whole crazy story happens over a weekend. So the end, and that's something I saw was brilliant about the Baz Luhrmann film is the energy of that film. The way it's edited is so quick, and it's got this feeling that things are really firing out of control. You know, these are characters who are not thinking things through. They are feeling things and acting on impulse. Whether it's Tybalt stabbing Mercutio or Romeo deciding to get married, and actually, it begs the question of: Does Romeo really? I mean, ultimately, 
he just sees Juliet and says, I love her. Now I believe, you know, like to believe in love at first sight. Um, I know certainly that love at first sight exists, having seen you, your eyes light up as your husband walked into the room when we were auditioning for Noel Coward. I can see you laughing very embarrassed now, but it's true. Uh, I'm, I'm just gonna have to interrupt you before with that train of thought because like every week on this podcast I'm like love at first sight sure sure but I am actually the biggest hypocrite here because you're absolutely right I remember when and also I was I was just helping Jimmy I didn't cast him it's not a casting situation but right. he walked into the room and I was literally like oh my god and then he left and then I remember you calling me and we're like, oh, we cast this guy called John. And I was like, who's that? And you were like, the one you fancy. And I don't know what it was, but I literally was like, I I just knew I was going to end up with him. Like, and we didn't even date until like eight months after the play had finished. I was very professional and also very scared of talking to him. Um, so uh, yeah, love at first sight can exist, but I just don't buy it in this context. Yeah, it's 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 about, you know, the big question is whether they confuse love with lust, which obviously people do when when they're younger. I mean, you know, we you know, I'm sure we both look back at, uh, you know, times maybe in our late teens where, you know, we thought that we were in love and you question it and you go, was that love or do I was I do you know, do you know what I mean? You kind of, you know, as you get older and you start to experience things and you start to experience the world, you you, you look back with the benefit of hindsight and you look back on reflection and you think you you know, you, you might have felt something at the time that felt like love, or you might have been in love, but it certainly does feel a little bit far-fetched that a 16-year-old and a 14-year-old are experiencing, you know, an emotionally mature version of of love. So it is, it's a crazy story, and it's, uh, but it's it's a brilliant story. And what we, sh- we, sh- we should talk about some of the, the elements of it, because there's a lot of comedy in this story, as well as it being a tragedy. There are some fantastic comedy characters. I know you're a big fan of The Nurse, like what? We, who, who's the nurse? Tell us about the nurse. I I love her. I feel like she's the only person with their head screwed on straight in this entire play. She's effectively, I suppose, what would be Juliet's nanny nowadays. Mm-hmm. I really like her. I like her in the play, and I like her in the the film adaptation. You know, she's the the like you said, the comic relief. But I think it it's funny, but it's also everything that she says is coming from a real place you know it's real heart she really doesn't want Juliet to like get into trouble and have the the situation that happens come come into light which is slightly sad because I guess we kind of laugh at her as a character as we go through the play but it's heartbreaking for her I I think she's yeah the only person who's really got anybody's best interest at heart unlike the friar who I'm like you're a grown man and you're like I just don't understand this character I'm like he is like meant to be a grown man you know a person of God who's who's trying to sort everything out and he thinks that he can fix this by secretly getting them married and then just like pretending that one of them's dead I just like and and that's going to make everything okay because once they're married love will win in the end because that's proven to be true over and over I just I think he's so irresponsible I just don't understand him as a character what do you think I, I disagree, actually. I, I love the Friar. And I think the, the thing is, like, what I'm going to come on to about that is that let's not forget that these two households are, you know, we start the play with them at war. This is a historical grudge. And, you know, I'm, I'll be interested to ask Freddie about this later on in, in, in what this prequel of the, of, of the play is. You know, we've spoken a lot about non-existent prequels and what is the backstory here? How long have these 
these two families been in a, a, a war with each other what was what was it like for these kids growing up this is a situation where these two families absolutely hate each other neck on neck and the place starts with a fight and the friar puts everything on the line you know he puts himself on the firing line in order to to basically help these two kids because he sees their happiness and he gives romeo the advice that i think the reason why i disagree is because he gives romeo the most important advice of the play which i think is wisely and slow they stumble that run fast and that is everything that romeo disobeys you know romeo is it, it, as, as a character um is so impulsive he, he he feels something and he acts on it he feels something and he acts on it he's that there is no consistency and 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 romeo does not uh, act wisely and slow and he stumbles and that is because he doesn't listen to the friar before he gets married so i think it's it's be the, i think the problem's beyond the friar's control i think he just wants to do the right thing and he wants you know he's got this idea this 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 utopic uh vision that these two the, the you know that they're, they're going to be able to be together eventually and break through this grudge and flee to Mantua and live in peace, be a couple living in isolation. And, you know, you see that in Midsummer Night's Dream. You see that with, you know, Lysander's desire to take Hermia away at the very beginning. There is this sense in Shakespeare that love can exist away from the clutches of a state or of control, but it's just bigger than him. I think the problem is just bigger than him and it's bigger than love. Love can't win against this this ancient uh, rivalry. That's That's what I think. Yeah, it's a very naive, youthful way of looking at things. I don't know whether that's Shakespeare trying to say. These ideals of like love and peace are, are fruitless. That's that's quite a sad message to, to be left with at the end of at the end of the, the, the play. I don't know. It's it's quite depressing. And I feel like TV and films nowadays, the thing that always seems to win against evil is love and that, I don't know how many movies you've watched where it's like to defeat the baddie, it's coming together and the love for each other or any kind of like superhero thing. It's like love is your greatest superpower and 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 things like that. And that doesn't seem to be the message that Shakespeare's sending. It's actually saying the tragedy of it all is what brings people together. The fact that it was beyond saving and that love couldn't help it and now your children are dead. That is the only way that they can fix their feud and that's that's really sad it's, I, I, if that applies to everything then you're effectively saying it's too late once you realize that you can fix the problem it's too late to fix it so climate change you'll only realize once it's too late to fix it really is that is that the message that we want to go forwards with i prefer i know i'm normally the cynical one but i prefer the message of like hey we can we can catch it before the end and maybe love can prevail and maybe we, we can save the planet. Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? I think, you know, because you look at these tragedies, whether it's Romeo and Juliet or Hamlet or, you know, Othello, and we've spoken about it in previous podcasts, but about how at the end of the play, the stage is littered with dead bodies and it is very depressing. But is that because what he's essentially saying is that if negative forces at work, whether that's ambition or greed or rivalry if they are at work they will that you know that can destroy love and actually maybe there is a there is an argument for that that actually you know the 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 the, the real sadness of Romeo and Juliet is that the family actually patch up their differences at the end 
when Romeo and Juliet have died. So it's so easy. It's so easy to actually have a handshake. Not at the moment. You shouldn't be shaking hands. Yeah, I suppose it is just a device. These like lovers dying and whatever. But I just, I just find it such a cynical, sad way of telling a story. I don't find it desperately romantic. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's just an age thing. Like we were saying when we were younger, and we used to feel so incredibly like passionate about things, and like Romeo and Juliet when they were fourteen and sixteen, how they felt like they were in love straight away. We felt like that. I get it. You know, we 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 had that. But I don't know. I think that's a nicer way of looking at the world. What do you think about this? That uh, I, I've always thought that this uh, story may not work in a modern context. And I love uh, the Leonardo DiCaprio film. I think it's great. But surely the big flaw of um, putting Romeo and Juliet in a modern day world is that they would have a phone. do you know what I mean she could text him and just tell him what she's gonna do all right so basically what happens is Romeo is on tinder he's found Rosalind and he's like hell yes swipe right and they're messaging a little bit then he's like oh there's a big party tonight TikTok's gonna be popping off there's a thing like I don't know what children do anymore Jimmy but I think TikTok's the thing um he goes to a party he sees Juliet they swap snapchat details he suddenly ghosts Rosalind I say snapchat purely because I have a friend recently who asked a guy for his phone number and was like I'll whatsapp you and he was like whatsapp oh my god that's what my parents use what's your snapchat and she was like oh my god how old are you he was 19 they did not continue to message after this yeah what they they I suppose modern day you don't get married but like what they run off to Coachella together for a weekend (laughs) it just wouldn't happen Romeo and Juliet would not work with iPhones. Now, it's time for our guest. He's known for his roles as Freddie Baxter in Cucumber, and more recently as Jeremy Bamber in ITV's White House Farm, and he starred in films such as The Three Musketeers, The Riot Club, and Pride. On stage, he's wowed audiences in several West End productions, including Travesties, Hay Fever, An Ideal Husband, The Judas Kiss, and of course, Romeo and Juliet. Welcome to the show, Freddie Fox. Lovely to see you. Thank you for agreeing to do it. Pleasure. Jimmy said that you're really excited to talk about Romeo and Juliet, which is good. Absolutely. <laughs> I think it's a wonderful play. And I think particularly for younger audiences, it has so much to offer. So I'm going to try and remember this. And, I'm, and, and do correct me if I get any of this wrong. But you were in a production at the Sheffield Crucible and about a year later or maybe six months later, uh, Kenneth Branagh uh, was putting on a production in the West End with Richard Madden and Lily James in the title roles. Richard Madden broke his ankle, an understudy took over, that understudy then got injured and then Kenneth Branagh called you up and you came and took over the role in two days. Is that correct? That's loosely correct. Uh, so it's a, it's the some of the details are a little more. I mean, it wasn't just like Ken Branagh went. I know the man for the job. <laughs> Lily and I have, have been best friends for gosh, best part of ten years now. We went to drama school together. We're born on the same day. We had all our big, significant 18th and 21st birthdays together, and we'd done a two-hander musical called The Last Five Years in our last year at drama school uh, and that we sort of 
sort of transferred for like five nights to the Barbican. And so we were very, very close. And there was a time when Lily was going to do that production in Sheffield with me and then couldn't, for whatever reason, she was doing some massive movie, I expect. And um, then she got asked to do it by by Ken Branner. And I, she was a bit, ah, shucks. I was a bit, ah, shucks. That's such a shame because we always wanted to do it together. And then this extraordinary thing happened, which makes it sound like I must have sort of secretly ice-picked both, you know, <laughs> Richard Madden and his understudy Tom. Because uh, Richard, yeah, rolled on his ankle when he was jogging. Tom did his knee in a fencing when he was fencing during, I think, a, a warm-up before the show. And um, Lily and I share an agent. And my agent said do you think Freddie would remember the lines? Because then it would give you this opportunity to do, maybe if Ken agrees, to do the play and save the day because they otherwise the show would go dark for a period of time. So they called me up and I was in Dorset in the countryside, which is where I'm from. And <laughs> they said, do you remember the words? And I said, well, it's been about a year since I've done it. So I don't know. So, but fortunately, because I I come from a relative well, an actory sort of household, there was a copy of the play in in the house, and it's the testament of brilliant writing. It just it was I read it and it was in, and it stayed in my head for the whole a whole year, which is pretty remarkable. I don't think any writing that is even an ounce less good than Shakespeare. I think you'd be able to do that with, but but it that, but I did. Yeah. That's it. That's just incredible that it all just seeped back in and 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 you know within two days you were able to was it a different cut i mean it must have been slightly different good question it was it was it was a slightly different version and so they they gave a little bit i gave a little bit i learned a bit more they took out a little bit and there was one matinee i remember where i in the middle of a speech scene with friar lawrence i just forgot everything and by complete blessings the guy who Play, who played Friar Lawrence had also played Romeo about three years before, and so he was able to feed me my lines when I'd forgotten them in the middle of the matinee. Oh, that's so nice! I love a generous actor, like not somebody trying to be like, "Ha ha, you screwed up," and it makes me look better. That's that's not what you want. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> team, 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 team playing. Yeah, I heard. Um, I think it was Gary Oldman was on the radio on Radio Four, and he was talking about like the first time he did a play. Um, he went out every night and he said this line and he got a laugh. And then one of the other actors who didn't get on with so well would, said to him, now go out there and try and lose the laugh. So went out, lost the laugh. And then he said, right now, the real trick is get it back again. And Gary Oldman said he could never get the audience to laugh again. And he said he learned that that was like a real horrible life lesson. What a cruel thing to do. My gosh. Machiavellian gamesmanship backstage. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and not even a Shakespeare play. <laughs> we've been talking a lot about all the characters in this play, where they start and where they end. And with Romeo, he obviously starts off like in love with Rosalind, and then he sees Juliet, and the minute he sees her, he's like, "Oh my god, I love you! You're you're beautiful." So I'm I'm always slightly skeptical about love at first sight in Shakespeare's plays. Do you think Romeo really does fall in love at first sight? Um, I think the key thing to remember about the play, or at least that helped me, I think specifically the second time I did it, is that they're very young and the emotions are heightened by the very sense that actually it's 
the first time any of this has sort of ever happened. Um, whether it's love at first night, I don't know. I think there's obviously a massive physical attraction. And then in that first, they only they have very few scenes where they're actually talking to each other. And so when they do the the speech in the ballroom, you know, palm to palm is holy, palm is kiss. That's see, they're they're testing each other the whole way through that scene. And I think the physical attraction, which is massive and it's forbidden, which obviously makes it even more sexy, is suddenly solidified and galvanized by the fact that she and he play so well off each other's words and suddenly he's like oh my god she's hilarious and she's funny and she gets me and suddenly this the whole package the youthful package explodes and then they're pulled apart again so what probably was love at you know first and a half sight suddenly becomes incredibly passionate because they're not allowed to see each other and you've got to remember that you know Shakespeare how he knew this I have no idea probably the I don't know, the merchants that were coming in and out of in and out of London was writing about Italy and Italy has such a culture of obviously familial divide but also great passion and uh you know uh, exuberance in love and I think the concoction feels real to me, even if it does take a little bit of a leap to go, oh, my God, they'll kill each other after only having met each other twice. You know, poetically, I think it works. And you just have to go there as the actor to make it work logically for the audience. That sort of teenage angst and total sort of urgency is, is something that you buy into more with teenagers than you would say sort of jaded 30 year olds. Exactly. And when you see productions of really young people, and I think, you know, both who I, I was very blessed to have two incredible Juliets, both Moraveth and Lily, who both look very, very young. And we had a kind of silly, I mean, boy, boy girlish kind of badinage between each other. You suddenly go, oh, yes, I couldn't, I can believe this. And those are the productions that, that I love so much that when I see it done right, you did suspend your your cynicism and your disbelief for the sake of you just see that they click immediately in that scene in the ballroom because of the dialogue and it just then it works for me it's so true isn't it what you were saying about this idea that they can't be together and, and wanting what you can't have and this sense of being taken away from each other and whether the you know the question mark i suppose is actually whether that love is you know born out of the fact that they can't be together or whether you know how how real that love is, you know what I mean. I, I think I think absolutely. The, the, it's key is the fact that they have they have they have found something and then it's immediately taken away from them, which only makes the appetite more and more. I think the real question would be if Romeo and Juliet stayed hadn't died, how long would they stay together? Yeah, mm, that's debatable. Maybe it would be a lifetime. Maybe it would be two months. <laughs> um, but. Um, I, I think that the youth, the Italian thing, the, the denial and the fact that they only see each other a few times makes each other perfect for each other. They, they make each other perfect for the, for, the, for, the other, for the other lover. One of the things that's interesting, I think, about a lot of the Shakespeare plays that we've discussed are these sort of non-existent prequels that take place. It, it feels like in Romeo and Juliet, there is this born, you know, we only really meet Tybalt twice, don't we, two or three times, and there's this vehement hatred. And the question, I suppose, you know, that's interesting is, is what is this backstory? What do you think this backstory is between the two households in terms of how are these kids brought up and what 
what was going on and how long has this feud been been happening for? Well, it's a very good question. And I mean, if if, if Italian family mafioso-esque feuds or anything to go by, then it could be, you know, half a century. Um, in our, the first production that we did, we sort of imagined that they, they were both quite down at heel sort of gangster families in that they both were sort of vying for you know, the rubbish collection rights, you know, it was all kind of pretty murky, but it had gone on for several generations. And kids get taught to hate very, very quickly by, by for by their, by their forebears. So um, I think you have to obviously acknowledge and paint the picture of a world that would be plausible to have had that kind of historical hate to it. And I think Ken's production did it very well. It was a, you know, a kind of 1960s sort of um, sort of flashy La Dolce Vita kind of mafioso kind of world, which I thought worked very, very well. Um, but you are, as you say, asked a lot of as an audience to go, oh, he hates her and he hates him and she loves him and she loves him. And, and I think consequently relies a lot on the actors to be able to convey with very short amount of time and with very few words a whole history that we have not been been party to uh, and i think that's when the productions of romeo and juliet work best is <laughs> obvious to say but when 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 the actors of the supporting parts are just as strong as those playing the leads so you're talking about the versions that you've done there have been so many productions of it we've talked about a couple of versions ourselves and we always cover in the podcast, like, where's the best place to watch it or what version you can watch. But what's your personal favourite adaptation or, or version of it? Oh, wow. What a good question. I mean, I, 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 I do have a very soft spot for the Baz Luhrmann film because you buy it. You believe it. You believe the world of that characters. And it's so sexy. I mean, pulsingly sexy which that play should be without, you know, bastardizing too much the, sac the sacrosanctness of the, the language. There was a very good production with slightly older actors. I think Sam Troughton was one of the actors at the RSC that I thought was very, very good. And they, but they, again, it, it was, there was no cynicism there. I think that's what, what they, they, they threw the cynicism to the wall and allowed you to be immersed in a world of young people, which I thought was great. And I suppose there are elements of the Zeffirelli film that I think are beautiful. I think it's a flawed film, but I think again, the, the wide eyedness uh, and the lyricalness I, I love. I, I sort of, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a staunch romantic. So I like it when the play is romantic and that you have actors. I think I specifically cite Sam Troughton, I thought who really d didn't try and overly naturalize the text. It was a very natural, you know, it was a very believable and truthful performance, but I find it very frustrating when you see actors go against the rhythm of the speech. And I don't mean to be reverential. I don't mean that the whole Donald Wolfett, da -dum -da -dum -da -dum -da -dum -da -dum, at all. I don't mean that at all. You have to find a total nuance and, 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 and naturalness to it, but permit the motion and the rhythm and the motor of the text to take you into the romance of the language, because it's some of the best language ever, ever written, I think. And if you go with the rhythm, their love will become clear. And if you go with the rhythm, it doesn't seem impossible that, that they would have kind of been obsessed with each other at such a short period of time. You said that you love the romantic versions because you're a massive romantic. Do you identify as Romeo then? Would you say that you've done things when you were his age? 
which were Romeo S? <laughs> I think so, definitely. I, I think uh, he's, he's a faffer. He's a terrible faffer. I'm a big faffer. He sort of gets stuck on stuff. I mean, you talk about the backstory. I mean, Rosaline, he's utterly mopish and morose at the beginning of the play because he thinks he's found the love of his dreams and she's just cast him off like he's a you know a glove i've had that that love where you sort of go i'm going to i'm going to throw myself in front of a train now it's over what's the point in living and but it was real to me then you know i i remember very clearly being sat at a train station and go i'm j- i've just you know i've broken up with someone i'm going to end it i'm going to end it right now it's ridiculous and <laughs> you do think all of that stuff when you're deeply in love for the first time and I, I, and so I do identify with him. I think he's, I think he's gorgeous. And as lo- but as long as you get the wit of him too, so he doesn't become unbearable. I think a lot of productions, and I've seen a lot of productions where Romeo, particularly Romeo, becomes unbearable because Juliet is so much more uh, sort of strong-minded, strong-headed. Possibly another very true portrait of a male-female relationship, and sort of is much more sort of concise with her thinking and and determined in her action. Whereas Romeo, he, he takes he, he 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 takes moving around, um, and I've definitely had that experience in romance. Certainly, yeah. complete personal preference here, but I find him at the beginning, like you say, it's it's very hard to kind of get past that swanning around with the notepad, writing poetry, sighing, and it's that moment on the ba- with the balcony when he's almost sort of talking to the audience in commentary as it's as it's happening that everyone starts to like him and they start to get behind him and they sort of on his side. And there's so much comedy to be had in that scene, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, there's even comedy to be found in that first scene with Rosaline. I mean, there's, you can, cynicism, you can have a little bit of cynicism I found in that scene, particularly with Benvolio, who's teasing him all the time. And then Mercutio later, he can give back and audiences like it when there's a little bit of spice and, uh, his wit and his wit is what totally saves him and redeems him. And he is funny very very funny and quick of thought what do you think it is that makes it one of the most popular plays of all time so so many ways you could answer that question i remember actually i went to verona before i did the first production because i wanted to go to northern italy i'd never been before but i wanted it was a bit of a a kind of again a romantic kind of i'm gonna go there you know see what i find and there may be useful things i pick up along the way and i did i picked up some useful props that i used and I remember going to the kind of the balcony where they say Romeo met Juliet, which of course is probably complete. I mean, obviously it's complete crap. It's very amazing to see the crowds of young people outside writing their names on the walls outside. There's this thing they do in Italy a lot where they lock their love in a kind of padlock on the on a gatepost. You see them a lot on bridges and they're everywhere. And I asked myself the same question. I was like, what is it about these people, some of whom won't have even seen or read the play? that makes them buy into that, so much so into that story. And I think, one, we all want to be in love and we want to feel love as keenly and as fervently as they do. We, that's, a, I think, a given for most people. We want that kind of connection. I think it, there, it, there's beauty implicit in that couple as well. We think of them in an idealized and beautiful way, which I think obviously makes it even the more enticing. And I think there's the, the forbidden element to it. The forbidden element of their romance is something hugely dramatic. And I think the play absolutely is steeped in drama. I mean, you only need to look at Shakespeare in Love, which is also a very good rendition of that story. 
to go, you know, it was conceived as Romeo and Ethel, the pirate's daughter. It was got, it was going to have tons of sword fights and swashbuckle and romance and, you know, great laughs, you know, from all these, the nurse character, you know, particularly is a great one for that. So it's got a bit of everything. And then finally, I think it's the, the language and the wisdom in the language. I mean, something like Mercutio's Queen Mab speech has something for every person for at least for one millisecond of their life there's something in that speech for them the imagery is so divine the imagination is so explicit and beautiful and i think ultimately when two gorgeous people who you go oh i wish i was a bit like them say those words to each other you're kind of you're kind of hooked aren't you i think you're kind of lost it's it's to it's perfect it's a spell it's witchcraft i love that you reference um shakespeare and love i talk about that film all the time i think in our first podcast i was like so jimmy in shakespeare and love <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. again it's the kind of thing where you watch it and even though they're like shakespeare and whatever it is that sort of passion where you're like you watch them and you're like oh god yeah i wish i wish someone felt like that about me and i think that's all kind of films which have been influenced by Romeo and Juliet. We were talking about Moulin Rouge, again, Baz Luhrmann. It's that sort of angst and the like forbidden love and the star-crossed lovers. And I think everybody wants that thing that you, you can't have because it's a little bit naughty and that's kind of a bit sexier than just, you know, a happy life with somebody who you're allowed to be with. Of course, totally. And, um, you know, writing is formulaic. You know, there is there is there is there is a structure to every story that will at certain beats within that story. You don't have to hit them at the same time, you know, as the, the, the writer before you. But there is a certain satisfying structure to, to with storytelling that I think that play particularly hits every single beat at about the perfect moment. And so you're never bored. I mean, even with a bad production of Romeo and Juliet, you're still kind of. Yeah, you might find it a bit, the beginning a bit mopey, but it moves at such a lick after that. And the language is so great. You kind of are kind of hooked. Whereas a production of King Lear or of Hamlet or The Merchant of Venice or, well, maybe not Tame Me the Shrew because that's a sort of comedy, but, but those plays, you go, you can, they can die after 10 minutes and you go, oh God, I, I have to sit through three hours of this. Whereas that one, you don't really. It's just, it, it's, it's structurally, I think it's fantastically sound and resilient. Freddie, what can I say? That, that was such a brilliant interview. Thank you so, so much. Um, we really appreciate you coming on. And I think, yeah, I think that's going to really inspire people to go and watch or read uh, Romeo and Juliet. Great. Well, I hope so. It's a wonderful play. And thank you very much for taking the time with me. I've really enjoyed it. OK, so we're now going to have a little chat about where you can, well, obviously you can read the play. It's a fantastic play to read, but also watch it if you want to see any of the film versions as well. Ali, let's kick off. What would you recommend people to watch? I think obviously the easiest one is definitely the Baz Luhrmann movie. It's great. It's a modern adaptation using the original Shakespeare. So you get the full you know, context of the play, but set in like a nice modern setting, their guns are named swords so that they don't even have to change the language for that. So when it's like draw your sword, it's the name of the, the gun that they've got, which is fantastic. 
I cannot say a bad thing about this film. I, I love it. I think it's brilliant. I love everything Baz Luhrmann does. I actually went and saw an amazing screening where we went to a old church and they had decked it out like in the film, you know, with the blue neon crosses all the way up. And they had a gospel choir singing all of the songs at the front whilst they played the movie on projection. It was absolutely incredible. I think it was by a company called Backyard Cinema. They do it every year. It is definitely like, I mean, probably not this year, but next year uh, when you're allowed to sit next to human beings that you don't know, try and go and see it because like if you if you've seen the movie at home great but this was just such a wonderful experience and you feel like you're in that end scene yeah i think that i agree i think that is uh is an excellent film um also i think equally good though is the uh 1968 uh zaffarelli film it's just so romantic and i think that's the thing that the baz Luhrmann film had but really gets brought to the forefront in the 1968 film it is just so, so, so romantic in that beautiful Italian way. So I'd say that those two films are brilliant. There's a Royal Shakespeare Company adaptation as well, uh, very recently. I was also going to say, there is a very lovely animation called Gnomeo and Juliet. Yeah! I, I, yeah, which is fantastic. It's really good. So it's about garden gnomes, and it's got Emily Blunt in it, and James McAvoy as the voices, and obviously Maggie Smith, who is just like royalty um and i think all of the music is written by elton john or it's like like i can't remember exactly what it is i think it's like elton john's like film it's is fantastic it really? it's really really good yeah and like some of the gnomes have blue hats and some of the gnomes have red hats and oh my god i like i i remember watching this when it first came out um I feel like I talk about animation an awful lot in this podcast, but this is a really good one. So if you have kids and you want them to learn the story of Romeo and Juliet, this is it. There's also a really adorable side story with a pink flamingo. Um, <laughs> that has kind of nothing to do with the uh, the whole Romeo and Juliet plot line, but the fact that there is a pink garden flamingo, which is looking for its lost pink flamingo lover, is just really adorable. And that totally wins me over. <laughs> I, I think also it's worth saying as well uh, that West Side Story, which a lot of people will be familiar with, is based on Romeo and Juliet. And that's obviously a very famous musical. There's a huge amount that you can go and watch. And I'm definitely going to go and watch Romeo and Juliet. Uh, after this that's definitely going to be my um my my pass off of, of 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 late research so that concludes our romeo and juliet episode we hope you enjoyed it we didn't go into loads of detail about this one because we figured every single person in the whole world has heard of it at some point or another so let us know if we've missed anything or if there's anything that you think we should have talked about that we didn't you can find us on twitter at shakespeare in q and send us your thoughts. Stay safe, guys. Bye.